Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to read our scripture for us today. So I invite you to grab your Bible and First uh, Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, rather, chapter five, verses fourteen and fifteen. And uh, page 966 in the Pew Bible, if you want to grab it there, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. When you got your, found your place, you can stand up, read God's Word together. The Apostle Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised. The word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Good morning. It's great to have all of you here this morning. And I want to give a quick update on uh, the sermon series and where things are going. I had mentioned back in the summer that I was going to be preaching a little mini-series on sexuality and gender. We're going to pick that up for Advent. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do <laughs> Not going to do that for Advent. Um, November is going to be our missions month, which we do every year, and uh, looking forward to that. And we've got some guest speakers that'll be in. And then we'll have Advent, as we do, uh, through the five uh, Sundays in December. And then in January, we're going to be having a little mini-sermon series on sexuality and gender. So a number of you have asked about when that's going to take place. I thought it was going to be sooner, but we didn't get it in in time. And so we're going to be doing that after the first of the year. This morning, though, we continue on in our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. And I want to focus our attention this morning on the for us of Jesus. The forest of Jesus, you say? No, no, not the forest of Jesus, the forest of Jesus. The fortress of Jesus? No, not the fortress of Jesus, the for us of Jesus. As in Jesus is for us. He is on our side. Maybe you had a rough week this past week. Maybe you have a rough week ahead of you in this coming week. And when the waters get choppy and things get hard, this is when we especially need the for us of Jesus, the truth that Jesus is for us no matter what. And the for us of Jesus is especially important when it comes to difficult relationships. That's going to be our focus this morning. Some of us have people in our lives, maybe many people in our lives, who are very trying to us. Perhaps it's a family member. Perhaps it's your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your boss, your senior pastor. I don't know. You know who it might be. But thank you. God bless you. But don't worry. If you've got someone difficult in your life, this is why we come to church on Sundays. As we're going to see from this text, the for us of Jesus is anchored in his death and ultimately his resurrection and has been given to us precisely in this context and these verses to help us navigate difficult relationships. So here's how this sermon is going to work. The first half of the sermon is going to be a a look at the two-part problem of sin. So focusing on two aspects of sin 
uh, that create problems for us. That's the first part of the sermon. Then we're going to have a brief intermission, a sermonic reflective interlude. You can't leave for that part. You have to stay where you are, but we'll have that in a moment. And then we're going to finish with the for us of Jesus and how all that comes together and shows that Jesus is for us. All right, so we're going to begin with the two-part problem of sin. And the first part of sin's problem that we see in the death of Christ. The death of Christ, while we might, as Christians, be inclined to think of it as a sign of blessing and God's love for us, it, it is that. But before we get there, the death of Christ is, first of all, an accusation and an indictment against all of us. In verse 14 of our text, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Paul is saying the reason the love of Christ controls us is because we have concluded the following, that since Christ died, therefore all have died. Now we're going to come back to Paul's comment about being controlled by the love of Christ. That'll kind of be the conclusion of the sermon. So for now, I want to focus on his comment that one died for all, therefore all have died. When Paul says that all have died, what does he mean? And there's a bit of debate around this verse. Some take Paul to mean that the first event, Jesus dying, has brought about the reality of the second event. Because Jesus died, that means everyone is now dead. So read in that way, we would take Paul to mean that the all have died in, we would take Paul to mean what he means similar in Romans 6. That all, because Christ have died, all have died in or with Christ. So in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, in giving his baptism formula, he says, when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. And everyone that's baptized into his death, then will be raised with Christ in his life. So we could read this passage like Romans chapter 6, but this presents a problem because if Paul means here in 2 Corinthians that all have died in Jesus, then that means, following his logic elsewhere, that means all will be raised in Jesus. But we know that's not what Paul means because he says all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament makes very clear that, that salvation is not universal. I was just reading in my devotions this morning through the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus makes the comment about how Judas will betray him and that it would have been better for him if he had not been born. So not everyone makes it into the kingdom of God. Not everyone will rise with Jesus. So Paul doesn't mean here that everyone has died with Jesus in kind of the Romans 6 sense. And Paul actually implies just as much here because in verse 15 he says that one has died for all, therefore all have died, so that those who live, and the implication being here that all die, but not all live. Only some will live. All right, so then how are we going to read this passage? Here's how I think. Not that the first event, Jesus' death, establishes the reality of the second event, but that the first fact... Jesus has died for all, reveals the truth of the second fact, that all have died. Paul is saying that the fact that Jesus died for all 
reveals the fact that all people have, in fact, been killed by sin. So here's an illustration. Let's say that a brood of poisonous vipers got loose in the church one Sunday, and a bunch of us got bit. And so Pastor Johnny called whoever one calls when poisonous vipers get loose in the church, and the rescue team came and rounded up the vipers and administered the antidotes to all those who had been bit. And the next day I was telling you the story. You asked how church was because you weren't there. Lucky you, you missed church that Sunday. And you asked how many people got bit, and I told you that the rescue team had administered 83 antidotes. Well, the fact that the team administered 83 antidotes means that 83 people got bit. The scope of the remedy reveals the scope of the problem. That's Paul's logic here. This is what he's saying he's concluded. He's saying that since Christ died for all, that necessarily means that everyone needed Christ to die for them, that everyone was dead. So the death that Paul is talking about is not the death that happens in Christ, but the death that happens outside of Christ because of sin. And because Christ died for all, that shows that everyone had died in sin. The scope of the remedy reveals the scope of the problem. And that's why the death of Christ for all is, first of all, an accusation or an indictment against all. You may recall that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were, they were quite willing to acknowledge the reality of sin. In fact, they talked about it a lot, but they weren't willing to acknowledge their part in the reality of sin. And what they found so offensive about Jesus and his teaching ministry was his insistence that they were just in much in need of redemption as the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and the, the gasp, the Gentiles. Take care of the sinners, Jesus. That's all nice of you. But don't come around here acting like you need to take care of us. We don't need you. And so they rejected Jesus and his redemptive ministry because they were not willing to acknowledge their need of Jesus and his redemptive ministry. But even if they were unwilling to acknowledge their need of Jesus, they still stood in need of Jesus all the same. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Paul is saying that the death of Jesus for all is proof that all have died and stand in need of him. Now, by itself, this is not an especially happy part of the gospel message. There's more to the gospel message to come of course, but there's no getting away from this starting point, that all human beings, without exception, have been bitten by the serpent of sin and have died spiritually. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all terrible people. It doesn't mean that we're even the most terrible versions of ourselves. But it does mean that sin has tainted every part of us and it has infected us with spiritual death, and that left unaddressed will eventually lead to eternal death in hell. So now let me ask you this, as you consider that reality. How does that truth, the accusation of Christ's death for all, how does that sit with you? I'm especially directing this question to those of you, my dear friends, who perhaps you come with a spouse or a family member 
wouldn't perhaps maybe choose to come on your own, or maybe you would, but you hang around the margins of Christianity. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian per se, but you have an amicable posture towards Christianity. Perhaps you've come to value Christianity as a a necessary moral framework. Or perhaps you value Christianity as a laudable goal, an orienting agenda for one's life. Perhaps you see the church and the Christian community as a necessary element of healthy community. All of that is well and good. But do you acknowledge, do you own the inherent and implicit critique that the death of Christ brings to all people? The death of Christ, the central founding reality of the Christian faith, carries with it a critique and a judgment of all people. Christ died for all because all of us stand in need of his death, because all of us have died in sin. Are you willing to acknowledge the reality of your own need of Jesus' death? I once saw a picture of Jesus on the cross, and underneath it was written, if I'm okay and you're okay, explain this. That's a fair challenge. Because the message of the gospel is not Jesus died for everyone because everyone is okay. The message of the gospel is Jesus died for everyone because everyone is not okay. The message of Jesus dying for all is a statement of God's love for all. But it is only become such when we come first to acknowledge its implicit critique It's implicit accusation that is against all. Jesus died for all because all have been killed by sin. So that's the first dilemma of the the problem of sin. It it extends to everybody, to all. But here's the second dilemma of the problem of sin, because it gets better before it gets worse. Sin isn't just some mere offense against God. It certainly is an offense against God. But it's not just some arbitrary offense against God. Sin does something to us. It ruins and breaks us. It it hinders what God has made us to be. Sin ultimately, Paul is going to say here, ultimately makes us selfish people. In verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus has died for all so that those who live those who go on to benefit from his redemptive work, might no longer live for themselves. Which is to say that a chief mark of being dead in sin, the the destructive power of sin, is that it makes us live for ourselves. Augustine was a church father back in the 5th century. Thomas Aquinas was a great theologian in the Middle Ages. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Indeed, pretty much the whole of the Christian tradition has described sin as incurvatus and se. It's Latin. They were always talking in Latin back in those days. But it's Latin for the will curved back in on itself. This is what sin is. We were created by God to extend love out into the world. But because of sin, we don't approach the world and God with hearts open and extending love, but the will turns back in on itself. 
and we become fundamentally self-absorbed people. The chief problem of sin is that it makes us think first of ourselves and our own self-interest. We lose the capacity to love. It causes us to live fundamentally self-protective lives at the expense of others. And that's what it means to live for yourself. It's what the gospel has come to save us from. Because left to ourselves, we do just live for ourselves. Now, we should acknowledge that most people in most circumstances are quite nice and even quite generous. Some of the best examples of our common human decency can be seen in crowds when we defer to one another. Oh, after you. No, after you. Well, thank you. How kind of you. Not at all, dear sir. How kind of you. And that's all well and good when there are a hundred sandwiches and a hundred people and no one's really all that hungry. It's easy to be generous. But the train comes off the tracks when there are a hundred sandwiches and there are 150 people and everyone's starving to death and hasn't eaten for a week. When our livelihoods are threatened or perhaps the livelihoods of our children or our spouse, we start getting a lot less generous with others. We get a lot more cutthroat, a lot more incurvatus and say. You ever seen a video clip of a crowd stampeding and trampling over one another when there's a limited supply of some essential good? I read an account of a naval rescue in World War II of the USS Indianapolis. The U.S. Indianapolis was on a top-secret mission to carry, actually, the atomic bomb over into the Pacific Theater. It's such a covert mission that very few uh, in Naval Command knew about it. And it was sunk at night in a very quick strike, and it went down so quickly that it barely had time to get off a distress signal. And it sunk so fast, and because it was on a secret mission, no one realized that it had been sunk. And of the 2,000 sailors that were on board, 900 of them made it into the water, but they weren't found for five days. And during that five days, 600 of them perished because of sharks. It was a horrible account. Dehydration, hypothermia, And many of them succumbed from their injuries and burns from when the ship was hit by the torpedo. And they were in terrible straits by the time that they were found. Well, eventually they were discovered and a a search and rescue pontoon plane landed down near them. And the sailors were so desperate to be saved. The men were so desperate that they began to swarm onto the plane. And so many men were clamoring onto the pontoons that 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 the plane began to sink. And the rescue pilots couldn't control the swarm of sailors. And so they had to quickly take off again while the men were still clinging to the outside of the plane, running many of them over in the water and throwing others out into the water as the plane got up into the air. Desperate times will turn us into desperate men. When the stakes get higher, the way of love gets lost. And we start living for ourselves. We become fundamentally self-protective at the expense of others. Now, most of us can keep our 
Battis and say at bay when the world is nice. But when the world isn't nice, in those times the power of sin exerts itself and our sin-infected self-protective reflexes kick in. And our will turns inward and we forget about love and we start thinking, out, start thinking about only number one. And let's be honest, we live self-protective, inward-turned lives even when situations aren't that desperate. I think we've all seen the video clips of the crowds trampling over each other at the Black Friday Walmart sale. Even when we have a house full of toys at home, we still become incurvatus and say. And that's because the will in its natural state is turned in on itself. So that's the two-part bad news. All have died in sin. The death of Christ is an indictment against all. And what sin has done to us is it has turned us in on ourselves. We've lost the way of love because of sin. We've become fundamentally self-protective. But the good news is that the straightening out effect of Jesus, the, the fixing of our inward curved wills, the repointing of our wills in selfless love towards Jesus and others. This is exactly what Jesus came to do. But before we get there, we're going to take our brief sermonic interlude of self-reflection now. If sin turns us inward towards ourselves so that we live fundamentally self-protective lives, let's take just a moment to consider a relationship where we are prone to do that. Maybe as we've been talking about how in our relationships we, we, we can have this self-protective turn. And maybe as we're thinking about that, someone has come to your mind. Well, let me invite you to ask Jesus if there's anyone that he would want to put his finger on in your life. Not everybody. We all can't handle everybody. If he threw the, if he threw the whole list of the whole book at us, we would be overwhelmed, right? Maybe not even the most difficult relationship that you have. But open yourself up right now and say, Jesus, is there anyone in my life that I become incurvatus and say towards that you want to you want to point out in my life? Is there someone in your life? Many of us have difficult relationships. Maybe it's your marriage. You know, there are difficult marriages here at Calvary. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your parents, your siblings, your friends, a friend, your coworker. Take a moment this morning and listen for Jesus' invitation to consider just one difficult relationship in your life. Just let Jesus direct your thoughts to a single relationship in your life where you hear him saying to you, with this relationship, with this person, I want you to get better at living for their sake rather than your own. Now don't let your mind race ahead about how you're going to pull this off or how you're going to turn this into a reality. For now, just let the Spirit of Jesus bring to mind a relationship that is difficult for you 
that you know he's asking you to extend love that you don't normally naturally do so. All right, does everyone have that name in their mind? Everyone shout it out. (laughs) No, don't do that. Don't do that. Would create a lot of counseling situations in my study probably if you did that. It's just between you and Jesus, right? Just between you and Jesus. All right, now, on to our last point. You've got that name in mind. Jesus is calling you to not be incurvatus and say towards this person, not to have an inward-turned will, not to be self-protective, but to extend love. Let's move on in our text here to verse 15. Because now we encounter the for us of Jesus. Jesus is for us. And the for us of Jesus means that we do not have to live for ourselves. So now let's see if we can connect this back into the call to love other people. The last half of verse 15 gets to the heart of our sermon this morning. Look here in verse 15. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We live not for ourselves, but for him who for our sake for our sake, died and was raised. We are freed up to live for others because Jesus is living for us. It's the for us of Jesus that frees us up to live in love for others. We're not being invited here in this verse 15 to live for someone who is living for their own sake. We're being invited to live for someone who is living for our sake, and not just living for us, but who is committed to our well-being, that he even died for us. He was so committed to not self-protecting at the expense of love that he went to the cross and suffered a cruel death of shame for us, for our sake, to extend love to us to show us the full expression of God's love. And this is the key that unmakes the destructive power of the incurvatus and say that's present in all of us. It's because Jesus is for us that we don't need to be for ourselves. It's because he is looking out for our sake that we don't need to look out for our sake. It's because he's protecting us that we don't need to self-protect. In a word, it's because Jesus is taking care of us that we don't need to take care of ourselves. And this is Jesus' basic point in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to his followers and he points out out, uh, all the Gentiles, all the pagans who don't know God as their father. And they spend their lives running around self-protectively chasing after all the basic necessities of life, anxiously asking, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? And their lives are fundamentally incurvatus and say because they believe that they have to take care of themselves. They see their needs, they recognize their needs, but they don't believe that anyone is going to take care of their needs. So they're taking care of their own needs and their will gets turned back in on themselves. But Jesus says to his followers, you don't need to be like that. 
You're children of God. Your Father above, He knows what you need. He sees your need. He's providing your need. You can be freed up to not have to supply your own needs because He's supplying your needs. You can get after the business of pursuing God's kingdom agenda of love. The wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus is living for us, and because He's living for us, we no longer need to live for ourselves. And because we no longer need to live for ourselves, we are freed up to live in love for others. He has died for our sake, and he has risen for our sake, and now he lives in heaven for our sake. And because he is living for our sake, we can live for his sake and the sake of others. I think this is such wonderful, free news. Because if Jesus is taking care of me, I don't have to take care of myself. And how much better is that anyway? I mean, he can take care of me far better than I can take care of me. If I'm taking care of me, I'm never sure that I'm actually doing it well enough. And that leads to a life of anxiety. But if he's taking care of me, I can rest that he knows what he's doing and has all the disposable resources at his hand and he can take care of me. And now I don't have to worry about that and I can be freed up to live the kind of life that he is calling me to live. Okay, now think back to that relationship that Jesus brought to your mind during our reflective sermonic interlude. The one where he is inviting you to stop self-protecting and to start living for the sake of that person. I want you to think about that relationship and about why it is that your will curves back in on itself in that relationship. Why does your will curve back in on itself in that relationship? Isn't it because something about that relationship makes you feel threatened and unsafe? As you enter into that relationship, you feel a threat and you have to start self-protecting. And you start curving back in on yourself. Your child disrespects you. And it makes you doubt your own sense of self-respect. Your boss doesn't recognize your work and it makes you feel insignificant. Your husband doesn't pay attention to you. and It makes you feel unlovable. Whenever we are prone to turn inward in self-protection, whenever we find it hard to extend the love outward towards another, that's always an indication that we are feeling some measure of threat. We are turning inward and away from love because something about that relationship is making us feel vulnerable and insecure. But here's the key. When we trust in Jesus' protection and we give up on the need to self-protect, we are freed up to extend unconditional love to others. So we might say, Jesus, when my five-year-old talks back to me, makes me feel powerless and insignificant. And that makes me feel vulnerable. And I end up shouting or saying things that I shouldn't say, or however that it manifests itself. 
but you are taking care of me no matter what. And I'm safe in you. And my truest sense of security isn't found in what my five-year-old says about me, but what you say about me. And I don't need to self-protect from my five-year-old. I can respond to my child with calm, firm, and unthreatened love, even when he isn't being respectful, because I know that you love me. Jesus, when my boss doesn't recognize my work, it makes me feel unseen and insignificant. And that makes me feel vulnerable and insecure. And I end up being bitter and passive-aggressive in ways that I don't like. But you are taking care of me no matter what. I'm safe and cared for by you. And my sense of dignity and significance isn't in what my boss says or doesn't say about me. But in what you say about me. And I don't need to self-protect in this relationship. I can extend love to my boss even when he isn't recognizing me. Or perhaps Jesus, when my husband doesn't pay attention to me, it makes me feel unloved and that makes me feel vulnerable and insecure. And then I start saying mean things to him in ways that I don't like. But you love me no matter what. And I am loved and cared for by you and my sense of worth isn't in the hands of my husband. I don't need to self-protect when he doesn't give me the love I want. I can extend love to him even when he isn't loving me because I have your love. When our deepest and truest needs are met in Jesus, we are freed up to stop living in self-protective ways for ourselves. And we can start living for others. The whole Christian faith begins with the for us of God's love for us in Jesus. That's where everything starts. And it's in the strength of that reality that we press on into the fullness of Christ. Now maybe as you reflect on the relationship that Jesus brought to your mind, it's not immediately obvious to you the threat that you feel. What makes you turn inward in unloving ways. Maybe you just say to yourself, I just find the person annoying. Fair enough. Well, let me encourage you to prayerfully dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper with Jesus. Each difficult relationship is unique. There's not one size fits all. But what's common to every difficult relationship that makes it difficult, why it's difficult, is because it's triggering a sense of threat, which is touching upon some point of insecurity in your life, some point of insecurity that Jesus wants to speak into, that he wants to meet. Maybe you're going to need to talk it through with a friend or a counselor or a pastor, talk it through more with Jesus, but let Jesus meet you in that relationship to highlight for you not where you're doing things wrong, but where he wants to care for you, the need that he wants to meet in your life. Conclude here with these thoughts back into the beginning of verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. This term that's translated here in our 
uh, English version control comes from the Greek term suneko. And it means to encircle or to grasp or to lay hold of. You can see it a number of times used throughout the New Testament. We suneko our ears if we hear a loud voice or we don't like what we're hearing. And an attacking, besieging army sunekos the city that is attacking. It encircles. We lay hold of things. To be sunekoed by the love of Jesus means that he has laid hold of us, that he has grasped us, that he has encircled us. Now, very often in this life, we don't want to be grasped or laid hold of or encircled. But to be grasped and encircled by the love of Jesus, to be wrapped up in his protective embrace, to be laid hold of by his care and by his tenderness, there is no greater comfort than that. It is a glorious, wonderful, freeing thing to be synagogued by the love of Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me ask you this. Do you long to be free of the incurvatus ense? Do you long to stop living for yourself in an endless and frustrating and futile quest for self-protection that never leaves you feeling settled? And God invites you, Christ invites you, I invite you, be sunekoed, be grasped, be encircled, be held by the love of God in Christ. Confess your sin. Jesus died on the cross as an indictment against your sin, but he also died on the cross because he loves you. Own your sin. Confess your brokenness. Confess your natural self doesn't love as it should. Open yourself up to Jesus' care in your life. Let Jesus be for you what you can't be for yourself. He is so committed to your well-being that he died for you. And he is so capable of protecting you that he rose for you. Stop living for yourself and give your life wholly to the one who is living for you. Or if you're a Christian here this morning, we always need to continue as we began. We first come to faith in Jesus. It's that moment where we realize that he is the one that we need to give our lives to, that he is the one that cares for us and protects us and encircles us, that he is the one that loves us. But then we can lose our way. And we can forget. Sometimes we willfully forget. Sometimes life just happens and we forget. But we come back to where we began and we too are synagogued by the love of Jesus. This morning you're stuck in a difficult relationship then pray that Jesus would reveal to you where you are needlessly self-protecting, where he is offering all of his resources, all of his provisions, but you're trying to take care of yourself. 
Pray that he would reveal to you the places of insecurity in your life that you're trying to manage on your own, that he wants to manage for you. Jesus loves you. And he is the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian life. And as we grow in our capacity to know and understand that Jesus is for us, we grow in our capacity to love others freely and truly. I'm going to close with a song as we always do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I uh, sent a text to Greg. He pulled an audible. I don't know if he saw it or not. Okay, he did. Okay, very good. Perfect. We're going to sing again, Jesus, strong and kind. Because the capacity to love others comes from the assurance that Jesus is taking care of us. If we're not able to love, it's because we've forgotten how much he is taking care of us. When we're thirsty, when we're scared, when we're weak, when we're so tempted to become self-protective. This is where we need to remember that Jesus is everything for us. But maybe, and I love the last verse of this song, maybe you're too thirsty to come to Jesus and you're too weak to come to Jesus and you're too scared to come to Jesus and you've been gone so long you don't even know how to find your way back to Jesus. But he comes for us. He comes for us when we can't come for him. So maybe that's where you're at this morning. It's just to say, Jesus, just come for me. I can't even come to you. Just come for me. He brings us his love. He brings us himself. He brings us all that God is. And he frees us up to live as we want to live and love for others. So let's sing.